listening to this week's sermon from King's Community Church. For more information about our church, including meeting time and location, visit kingscommunity.ch. Morning, church. It's a great privilege for us to be able to meet here at Morningside Elementary. I'm very grateful for Comal ISD and uh, the, the opportunity that they've given us to, to grow this young church into something uh, for the glory of God, for the good of others, for the blessing of our community. Uh, they are a terrific school district. Um, and with spring break coming up, that's paid holiday for their staff. Uh, which means we don't have a key to get in for the next two weeks at the front end and tail end of spring break. Uh, But have no fear, we'll continue to meet as a church outside of this place because this facility doesn't define who we are. Being a, a a people of God on mission with him is what defines who we are. So next week, March 8th, we are going to meet at 10 a.m. in Landa Park at Shelter 16 for a prayer gathering. We want you to be present for that. Uh, Prayer fuels the mission of the church. Prayer is not inactivity. It actually undergirds all of our activity. We want to invite you to come participate with us. Prayer in the park, Atlanta Park in Shelter 16 next Sunday at 10 a.m. It's in your worship guide. It's on the website. It'll be on our social media feed. Meet us there next week as we ask God to go before us. Uh, to continue to go before us in prayer. Uh, the week after that, we'll have another great opportunity off-site. Uh, make sure you're signed up to get King's Weekly, the email that we send out each week with information, dates, and locations. Uh, make sure you're following Instagram and Facebook. These are ways that we disseminate information, and we don't want you to miss anything. Uh, but we do invite you to come and pray with us next week. And, and it's March, so the weather's a wild card. Some of you are thinking, what, what happens if it rains? Well, you're, you're going to get a little bit wet. But we're going to continue to meet as a church. Nothing's going to stop us from that. As we begin this morning in the sermon, uh, we're continuing our series, Trellis in the Vine. And we're talking about the nature of God's church continuing to grow through all sorts of circumstances. And we're going to preach through Acts chapter 7. If you have a Bible or a smart device, I encourage you to turn there. It's a beautiful chapter of scripture. And while you prepare uh, for Acts chapter 7, I want to tell you a story about my little buddy Jonathan. I've coached several of my son's sports teams. And a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to coach uh, my son as well as several other kids in basketball. And Jonathan was on the team. It was the second sport I coached him in. Jonathan was born with some developmental delays, which made life and relationships a lot more difficult for him, but it didn't stop him from living. Jonathan was a wonderful kid. Uh, He didn't always listen, so he fit in great with the other four and five-year-olds on the basketball team that I coached. Now, this league wasn't as much about competition as it was having an organized activity, having fun, and hopefully learning to build some relationships and and learn a little bit about the sport of basketball, the little bit that I could transfer. I think some of the kids might have taken something away. Most of the league was the same. Most teams were just like us. Once or twice a week, we would herd cats 
one or two of the kids would start to figure out the process of a basketball game. And it was, it was fun to watch and kids were excited. There was one team that stood out in the league. They had a player who was one of the best little basketball players I've ever seen. This kid had moves. This kid could, could legitimately do whatever he wanted on the court. Most kids' moves were learning how to dribble and walk at the same time. If you know anything about basketball, this, this little four or five-year-old, whatever he was, he had a step-back jumper, all right? Three of you know what that is, and you're impressed. It's a move. You can quickly find out that, that it, it's pretty apparent this kid is the, the son of the coach, and they have a good relationship, and they're just tearing through all the teams they play. We were no different. Uh, in fact, when we played them, every quarter was a little bit worse than the quarter before that as our kids got tired. And it was mostly because of this one elite child uh, who was able to do whatever he wanted on the court. What was um, one of the rules of this league was that all the kids would wear a different color wristband. There were five for each team. And to keep the kids from swarming on whoever had the ball, you could only be matched up on defense with the child with the same color wristband as you. Just before we started the fourth quarter, I watched the other coach wait until we got our team ready. And he waited to see what color wristband Jonathan had on. And then he gave his son the same color wristband to expose a weakness. And it made me furious. So I got down on my knees and I looked at Jonathan in the eyes. I said, hey, buddy, what color wristband do you have on? He said, blue, right, blue. Do you like blue? Yeah. I like blue too. It's my favorite color. I'm so glad you're blue. Now look on the other team. Who has the blue wristband? Him? Do you see him? Yeah. Okay. That means you're going to guard him for the rest of the game. Okay? Yeah. I have a mission for you, Jonathan. Jonathan got excited when I said I had a mission for him. I have a mission for you. For the rest of the game, I want you to do everything you can do to try to make that kid your best friend. Jonathan got really excited because there was something I had learned about Jonathan through a soccer season, now through a basketball season. He wasn't there to play sports. He was there to make friends. He was one of the most loving kids you would meet. He would initiate with anyone. He was talkative. He was friendly. He was very hands-on. And I just gave him the mission to make best friends with this kid on the other team. And for the next quarter, he shut that kid down. <laughs> he walked up to him and, and just put, put his arms on his shoulder and said, hi, I'm Jonathan. And when that kid sped up, Jonathan sped up. And he defended him so well in, in the most unique way possible with love and a smile on his face the whole time. See, the other coach had made a mistake in underestimating Jonathan. He thought he saw a weakness, but he didn't see Jonathan's real strength. I was so proud of Jonathan that day. His teammates were proud. He got high fives from everyone. We made him the player of the game. I'll never remember the score that day, but I'll never forget that scene. 
what does any of this have to do with church? God is in the process of changing the world right now. There are many times when it looks like the church is losing or weak or ill-prepared to handle the pains and brokenness of this world. Don't look at those weaknesses and miss what God is actually doing. Some of you have experienced the deep brokenness of the world. Some of you have grieved the loss of a job or some great expectation that you've had for your life. Maybe you've had a meaningful relationship that's fractured by distance or divorce or cruel words or even worse, death. Jesus told his followers, in this world you will have trouble, but have courage. I have overcome the world. Don't mistake brokenness, pain, hurt, wounds, wars, or even death for God's weakness. Look at Jesus' resurrection to see God's true strength. Resurrection isn't just a story we tell ourselves in the Bible. God told us it was the beginning of him making all things new, which is where we find our strength in this world that is broken. And I promise you, God will use unimpressive things and even our pain and trials to put his own glory on display. God wastes nothing. He will use all types of circumstances to bring praise and glory and honor and fame to Jesus. We see that demonstrated in Acts chapter 7. We see it through the courageous leadership of a Christ follower named Stephen. Acts chapter 7, some of you are probably worried if you open your Bible. It's really long. (laughs) Let me help us through it. In order to really understand Acts chapter 7, we have to know what's going on in Acts chapter 1 through 6. As we've talked about it, the church is growing rapidly. There's numerical growth There's spiritual growth among people. There's now a growth of a leadership structure. Last week, we talked about how it was like a vine growing and growing and growing. And God's now implemented leaders that function like a trellis so the vine can grow more and produce more fruit. They're gaining massive influence in Jerusalem. That's God's holy city where Jesus was killed and where he resurrected recently. That's the first six chapters of Acts. Then in the second half of the sixth chapter, we see religious leaders trying to stop the growth, but they can't. So they get together and they fabricate a lie. They bear false witness. They make a, a wrong accusation to rile up the people against the church because the religious leaders are losing power. And we read about this man, Stephen, who's a faithful Christ follower and a new leader. And the religious leaders accuse Stephen of a major crime, blasphemy. In Acts chapter 6, they say Stephen has blasphemed against Moses and God. They say he's blasphemed against Moses because Moses was one of the primary leaders that God used in the Old Testament And if that wasn't enough of a crime to get Stephen in trouble, they say he blasphemed against God as well. So they're they're really accentuating this lie to try to pull the foundation out from under the church. Stephen is this brand new leader in the church. We don't even know that much about him. 
And the high priest approaches Stephen in front of the crowds. This is like an impromptu court case. And he says, is this true? Now, this is a very fragile situation for Stephen to be in. The accusations of blasphemy are a big deal. If Stephen is a blasphemer, that means he's lying about God. Now, most of the people that are converting to become Christ followers come from a Jewish background. If Stephen's blaspheming against Moses and against God, that pulls the power out from their ministry. So how would he defend himself? Because if he didn't defend himself, the the accusations of blasphemy were legally punishable by death. And if they didn't take that seriously, if you don't take that seriously, you're missing the reason Jesus went to the cross. The accusation against Jesus was also blasphemy, that he lied about God. So Stephen's in a very precarious position in his early moments as a a young leader in the church. When the accusation of blasphemy is made, the court asks him, are these things true? And Stephen responds with one of the longest, most eloquent, courageous sermons that we see recorded in all the Bible. I want to summarize the beginning for us and really camp out in the end. In 52 verses, Stephen gives a brilliant Old Testament survey clinic for these teachers of the word. He gives them a class on the whole history of God in the Old Testament. He begins with the life of Abraham, the father of their tradition. He quotes Genesis chapter 12, but he doesn't just quote the scriptures. He gives them an explanation of what it means for all of God's people throughout all of history. He doesn't stop there. He moves on to what they would have known as the patriarchs, the fathers of the faith. From Abraham came Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. In summarizing all their stories, Stephen's giving like a spark notes for the book of Genesis. He's highlighting all the major figures in the first 50 chapters of the Bible, and he does it with eloquence. He doesn't stop there. He moves into the book of Exodus. He talks about the life of Moses, his calling, his ministry, his rejection, his persistence in leading as he keeps his eyes fixed on God. He continues after Moses and talks about Joshua, David, Solomon, the prophets, all the big players in Israel's history. He's touching on all of them, explaining that he's got a strong command of what the Old Testament says. He summarizes the history, the law, the covenants, the kings, and the prophets. He does it all with accuracy and understanding. He knows his stuff. He's not a blasphemer. He knows the Bible really well. But he also does something in speaking to his audience about the understanding of the Old Testament. He talks about Israel's sin and rebellion against God. Stephen talks about Israel's unfaithfulness, their idolatry, their love of traditions more than they love the scriptures. And he points out how time and time again, God's chosen people chose not to listen to the Holy Spirit. And listen to how Stephen ends this sermon beginning in verse 51. Excuse my language. I'm just reading the words on the page, okay? Brace yourselves. 
you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Okay, 2,000 years ago, you all would have been jarred by that. (laughs) He calls them stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. When Moses came down from meeting with God, when he was on the mountaintop, the accusation that he made against Israel, who made idols when Moses was away with God, he called them stiff-necked people. He's using Moses' words to turn this trial on its head. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, that is Jesus, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels, and yet you have not kept it. Stephen ends his sermon by calling out Israel's history of unfaithfulness, and then he points to his accusers and said, you're even worse than them because you had the Messiah that all of Israel's been waiting for throughout all of history, and you murdered him. He tells them that they should be on trial, not him, and this drives his listeners to near insanity. In verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he died. Stephen spoke boldly. His words were filled with truth and grace simultaneously. He proclaimed God's word with great conviction, even when it would cost him his life. While he was being murdered, he forgave his enemies. If you know the story of the Bible, that sounds very familiar because his Savior did the same thing from a cross. The religious authorities terrorized the church that day. Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. 
in the midst of their grief over a murdered church leader and friend, the church scattered from Jerusalem into the nearby towns of Judea and Samaria, just like Jesus promised would happen in Acts chapter 1. At the beginning of Acts, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest places on earth. To this point in Acts, we've only seen the church grow in Jerusalem. The church is growing and growing and growing, but they're not going and going and going. And God uses even an instance like this to fulfill his mission. Isn't that profound? Acts chapter 7 teaches us so much about courageous leadership, but I want to highlight three things for us today. There's three things that I think we can really glean that will help us take our next step with Jesus today. And the first one is this. The Holy Spirit leads us to follow Jesus through all types of circumstances. You hear that? The Holy Spirit leads us to follow Jesus through all types of circumstances, not just on our best days. Stephen is called a man full of the Holy Spirit. It's said four times of him before he says a word in Acts. He's chosen because he's led by the Spirit. In Acts chapter 6, we hear that Stephen is full of grace and power. That word power is associated with the Holy Spirit because Jesus told his followers, when you receive my spirit, you will have power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the remotest places on earth. So when we hear that he's a man full of power, it has nothing to do with status and everything to do with being filled with the Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? What does the Holy Spirit do? Most of us who would call ourselves Christ followers or Christians would say that we want to live a spiritual life. Most of us would probably say that that we want to practice spiritual disciplines or, or these things we call here at King's Community habits for our holiness. These things that that help us know God more. Most of us would say that, that we would long to fulfill Jesus' desire for us to live lives that produce spiritual fruit. But in my 18 years of following Christ, my 18 years of being a a Christian, I've noticed that of the three people that make up the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God and three persons, the one that we know the least about is probably the Spirit. How can we long to do spiritual things and be spiritual people and produce spiritual fruit if we don't know what the Spirit is and how the Spirit works? The Holy Spirit always led Jesus to honor God the Father. Therefore, the Holy Spirit always leads us to follow Christ. If the Holy Spirit always led Jesus to honor God the Father, In tandem with that, in harmony with that, the Holy Spirit will always lead us to follow Jesus who honors God the Father. And among many other things, the Spirit seals us, teaches us, comforts us, guides us, and gifts us. I'll say that again because that's a lot. Among many other things, the Spirit seals us, teaches us, 
comforts us, guides us, and gifts us. What does it mean that the Spirit seals us? In order to understand that, you have to understand how kings communicated back in the day. When they would send a letter of authority, they would melt wax and they would have an official seal and they would press their seal into the melted wax and put it on the letter and it would have to remain sealed until it got to the listener. And the one who would receive the letter would look at the seal and it would be unbroken and they would know that was an authoritative letter with the sign of the king on it. Well, if you have trusted Christ, God has put his seal on you. He has sealed you with his spirit, which means until Jesus returns or calls us home, we walk through this life with God's seal on us. And the day that we're presented to God the Father, he will look at the seal of the spirit that reminds him that we are one of Jesus's. And that's where we get our acceptance before God the Father. The Spirit seals us. That is critical for us to know. God's stamp is on us if we've trusted Christ. Secondly, the Spirit teaches us. I find it fascinating that the church leaders, the religious leaders, excuse me, the religious leaders and Stephen are using the same text to justify their position in this world. Except the religious leaders are looking at the Old Testament from a man-centered perspective. And because of the power of the Holy Spirit, Stephen is able to look at the Old Testament with a God-centered perspective. They're looking at the same words, but Stephen is able to understand it because the Spirit teaches. The Spirit comforts us. What does that mean? Stephen is in the midst of dying a brutal and violent death. And listen to how he's described. Peaceful. How's he able to do that? Because he is full of the spirit that is comforting him, even in his greatest affliction. The spirit guides him to be in the right place at the right time to walk in step with Jesus. The spirit gifts him with the ability to speak the word in a meaningful way and help build the church. Among many other things, the Spirit seals, teaches, comforts, guides, and gifts us. So how can we be Spirit-led people? We can't just know what the Spirit does. We want to be Spirit-led people. God never disagrees with himself. God is always in harmony, Father, Son, and Spirit. So the Spirit will always lead us to honor Jesus, which means if we fix our eyes on Jesus, the Spirit will move our feet to walk in step with him. If we fix our eyes on Jesus through the Bible, the Spirit will move our feet to walk in step with him. Think about it like an Olympic track athlete. Wherever their eyes go, their feet are going to follow If they look ahead, they're going to run ahead. If they look to the left or to the right too long, they're going to veer in that direction. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus in order that our feet can follow him. How do we fix our eyes on Jesus so that we can be led by the Spirit? I believe this is the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Okay? This is a huge difference. The difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Growing up, I had... I had a lot of useless information about professional athletes. 
I'm convinced it was a bit of a gift. (laughs) I knew so much about so many different professional athletes, not just who they played for, their position, their stats. I knew some of their hometowns. I knew some of their stories. I knew about them. I didn't know them. You know who I knew? Lenny Couch, (laughs) my best friend in elementary school. I knew Lenny. I knew what could make Lenny laugh so hard that chocolate milk would come out of his nose. I knew what could make Lenny angry. I knew that on Friday, pizza day at school, Lenny would pick off those cube pepperonis on that delicious slice of rectangle pizza and eat those first in hopes to spread it out over a longer period of time. I knew Lenny because I spent time with Lenny. I knew Lenny because I listened to Lenny. I knew him because we interacted in the everyday stuff of life. Do you know stories about God? Do you know stories about Jesus? Or do you know him intimately in such a way that you can sense where he's moving in your life? When bad things happen, is your initial response, how could God do something like this? Or God, in spite of this brokenness, I know you're making all things new. When it comes to relationships, do do you ask yourself, how do I feel about this person and then act accordingly? Or do you know what God's word says? And do you treat people with great love because that's what God taught us to do? When you think about your own sin, do you shrug it off as not a big deal? Do you beat yourself up over it? Or do you remember the cost that Jesus paid for you and confess and repent, turning away from your sin and turning back to Jesus in order that you can walk in step with the Savior that you love? These are the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Among several other things, the Spirit seals us, teaches us, comforts us, guides us, and gifts us. And the Holy Spirit always leads us to follow Christ. And the second point is that the Holy Spirit will compel you to speak courageously when it means making much of Jesus. The Holy Spirit will compel you to speak courageously when it means making much of Jesus. A few weeks ago, I had coffee with a young man, a great guy. He's not a Christian, uh, but he wants his life to have purpose and meaning and value. And he's doing a lot of wonderful things. And he asked if we could get together. And I I want you to hear from me. I'm susceptible to fear, too, when it comes to talking about Jesus. But I determined that I don't just want to share the gospel when I have a microphone on. So on the way to this meeting... I'm praying to God, would you give me courage to to speak in such a way that I might be able to share your gospel with this young man? And if you do that, God, would you teach me what to say and when to say it? Because I don't have confidence that I can do it on my own. I spent most of the time asking questions and listening. This kid's got a great story. He's doing a lot of wonderful things, but he's still struggling with purposelessness And I asked him in the middle of our conversation, hey, man, what's your experience with Christianity? Because I don't know many people who pursue the things in life that you pursue that aren't Christians. And he proceeded to tell me he didn't have a lot of interaction with Christians, 
But the interaction that he did have was, was really awkward. It was really transactional. He felt like there were some bait and switches going on. And when he shared, he shared a lot about religious traditions, but I never heard him use the words sin and grace and, and purpose or cross and resurrection. So I asked if I could introduce him to some of what I believe about Christianity, and I shared those things with him. And I just felt compelled to take another step. And I talked to him about the holiness of God. God's perfect righteousness. And because of that, God can't stand even little sin. And he said, yeah, that, that makes sense. And as we talked that day, he, he said that he, he wasn't ready to become a Christian, but he was excited to have this new perspective to think about more. Have you ever found yourself afraid to share your faith because you don't know what you would say? If that's the case, you're not understanding the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Spirit's filling in the book of Acts is the Spirit giving the believer what he or she needs for the next step of obedience to the will of God and service to the kingdom of God. The way the Spirit works in the book of Acts is giving the believer everything he or she needs to do the will of God or for the service of the kingdom. In Acts, over and over again, they talk about the church growing in numbers, but they always talk about the word of God spreading. If you're a follower of Christ and you're walking in step with the Holy Spirit, God will compel you to speak to people. The gospel doesn't advance without words. Jesus promised that his spirit would give the disciples the words they needed when they were hauled before governors or kings. He told his people, his followers, you don't need to think, you don't need to plan and prepare a sermon. You need to trust and obey, and I will give you the right words at the right time. He promised his disciples that, and in Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen ready, willing, able to trust and obey. If you're following Christ, you will be led by the Spirit who will compel you to speak. And thirdly, this one, is, this one is difficult for a lot of people. Thirdly, I want us to see in Acts chapter 7 that God is sovereign, which means he'll accomplish his plan even through our pain. But God is also loving, which means he'll take care of his children in the process. We need to understand those two things together. God is sovereign, which means he'll accomplish his plan even through our pain. But God is also loving, which means he'll take care of his children through the process. That's why we can follow Jesus with confidence because he's both sovereign and loving simultaneously. If God were not sovereign, we'd have no confidence that he'd overcome our pain. If God were not loving, we'd have no confidence that he'd comfort us in our affliction. We can follow Jesus in all circumstances with confidence because God is both sovereign and loving at the same time. That is good news for all who believe. Stephen is filled with the Holy Spirit and he's got his eyes on his resurrected Savior. 
even in the midst of harsh circumstances, he won't look away. Listen to what it says again in verse 56 and 59. Stephen said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. His hearers hated that because they didn't believe heaven had space for anyone but God. But Jesus is God and he's looking at him. He's got his eyes fixed on his Savior. And then in verse 59, while they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he looked to the heavens and with a loud voice said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Even to the point of death, brutal, violent death, Stephen's eyes are fixed on Jesus and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He goes on to die just like Jesus did, calling out to God, receive my spirit. Being accused of a lie just like Jesus. Forgiving his enemies just like Jesus. Of course he's dying just like Jesus. He's got his eyes fixed on Jesus. And where our eyes are directed, our feet will follow. But the biggest difference between Stephen and Jesus is that Jesus Christ died on a cross alone so that Stephen wouldn't have to and so that we wouldn't have to die alone either. The solace in Jesus' suffering is our strength. He died alone so that we would never have to. Jesus is there with Stephen, honoring his promise. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. I will be with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. In this world, you will have trouble, but have courage because I have overcome the world. In spite of everything, Stephen dies peacefully and the church spreads because God is sovereign and loving simultaneously. How do we grow courageous faith like this? Fix your eyes on Jesus. We're singing about it. We're reading about it. We're preaching about it. When we celebrate communion, we remember to fix our eyes on Jesus I encourage you, I urge you, don't just learn about him. Get to know him. That takes time together with him. That takes prayer. That takes time in community where we're constantly pointing one another back to him. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Where your eyes go, your life will follow. And secondly, go boldly pushing back the darkness in your life and in the world around you. Go boldly, pushing back the darkness in your own life and in the world around you, following Jesus through all types of circumstances, ready to speak courageously, trusting God who is both sovereign and loving. You may think of yourself as a very unimpressive Christian. God is in the business of using unimpressive things to put his glory on display. 
Will you pray with me that we could be unimpressive things in the hands of Jesus? God, you are so gracious to us that you would leave your throne to be born in humble circumstances to forgo the heavenly treasures that you deserve in order to have us back. God, we thank you for your righteous life in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the unjust death to purchase us and bring us from death to life. And Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that seals us, teaches us, comforts us, guides us, and gifts us. Would you fill us with your spirit in order that we can go forward with our eyes fixed on your son boldly into this world, pushing back darkness, being ready to speak up in any circumstance, trusting your sovereignty and your love. We pray this in the good name of our Savior, King Jesus. Amen.